Part three of Bizarre by Lawton McCall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Interior Desperation It is easy nowadays to give advice on how to arrange your home. The woman's page in any newspaper will tell you just how your living room ought to look, just how your hallway may be beautified, and just how your kitchen may be transformed into a scientific laboratory. Scores of books by experts on the subject undertake to instruct you how to change your home from a place to live into a work of art. Realizing that my abode needed a little toning up along modern aesthetic lines, I consulted a book called The Dwelling Beautiful, which I had been informed would give me just the help I needed. It is not necessary that you for furniture, rugs, hangings, and pictures be expensive, says the author, reassuringly. The only essential is that they be beautiful in themselves, and in restful accord with each other. Pray, gentle writer, did you ever see my belongings? Did you ever see the marble and walnut parlour table that Aunt Jessamine gave me, or the streakily stained mission piano with mottled glass panels and gewgawy candle brackets, that my wife won in the guessing contest, and is therefore inordinately proud of, are the case of stuffed birds which Uncle Lemuel left me in his will? How am I to make these things beautiful in themselves, and in restful accord with each other? The truth is, none of our furnishings are gregarious, from the green rug whose acrid hue assaults every other colour in the room, to the wonderfully and fearfully made ornamental lamp, each thing is what the advertisement writers would call different. Rabid in their nonconformity, how am I to make a happy family of them? The main fuse between our heirlooms and our wedding presents, the former being atrocities in oak, walnut, and plush of the Victorian era, and the latter present-day garishnesses, so that the general effect might be likened to a colon, one period on top of another. The author of The Dwelling Beautiful would probably suggest that I get rid of some of these encumbrances. The lamentable fact is that I can't. My relatives would disown me. For my whole family connection, not to mention my wife's, about which much might be said, takes upon itself to police my belongings. Every visit of a relative, even the casual call of my most distant cousin, means a critical inspection, a careful stock-taking of heirlooms and wedding presents. A person who gives you anything as a wedding present never forgets it. His taste may be erratic, but his memory is inexorable. Because a thing happened to catch his fancy in an off moment, it is anchored in your home forever, and the feeling of self-appreciation for his generosity, which he experiences whenever he beholds his gift in after years, prevents him from admitting, even to himself, that he was out of his mind when he bought it. Hence you are doomed to be its perpetual curator, with the obligation to display it prominently, so that whenever he chooses to enter your house, he may see it and claim it with his eye. An heirloom is still worse. Each one that you have in your possession might have gone to somebody else, and that somebody else feels that he or she would have appreciated more than you do. Nevertheless, for you to disburden yourself of a single heirloom by presenting it to the person who coveted it most would be to precipitate a family crisis. Take, for instance, that case of stuffed birds. Every time Uncle Lemuel's daughter sees it, she tells me how much it always meant to her and how the old house seems empty without it. Yet whenever I offer to make her a present of it, she bursts into tears and sobs that her dear father wanted me to have it. 
because I had once told him I liked birds, and that therefore she would be the last person in the world to deprive me of it. So, along with all the rest of the harmony killers, I am saddled for life with this ornithological incubus. It is true, as Cousin Ophelia says, that I like birds, but my fondness for them does not continue after they are defunct and stuffed, neither does it include owls, whether alive or dead. And there are no less than three owls in that cabinet, gloomy, dusty, evil-looking fowls, their big yellow glass eyes wide open and staring. I'll wager that they had their eyes closed when Uncle Lemuel shot them. He never was much of a sport. Be that as it may, these lugubrious specimens are on my hands. I kept them in the living room till I couldn't stand them there any longer. Strangers would ask me how I happened to take up taxidermy. Then I removed them to the dining room, where they promptly took away my appetite. Transferred subsequently to the nursery, they caused Mamma's pet to go into convulsions of terror. I offered the cook an increase in wages if she would take the cursed things into her room. She threatened to leave. I made a pathetic appeal to my wife to take them into hers. She reminded me coolly that Uncle Lemuel was my uncle. Now they're in my room, in the corner, where I used to keep my favorite chair. But something tells me that they may not endure there forever. I am a mild disposition man, long-suffering and tractable, but that cabinet of birds is too much. Some day you may see clouds of smoke pouring out of my windows and fire engines filling up at my door. If you do, don't feel sorry for me or censure me. The burning need will be satisfied. It will be a case of sponsored combustion. The Writing on the Screen being interested in human nature in all its manifestations, I have lately made a study of handwriting, as it is shown in the moving pictures. I undertook this research because I had been given to understand that chirography, when scientifically analyzed, revealed every nuance of human character, and because the personages in moving pictures, being intensely dramatic, could not fail to have striking individualities as penmen. Let me give some of the interesting examples which I found. Here, for instance, is a confidential communication from a great financier to one of his associates. Dear Bugenheim, bury 30,000 shares of BVQ immediately. We must foil Stockfeller if it takes our last million. J.P. Marmon Observe, in what firm, steady hand this is written. It shows that the great financier can be cool, even in a crisis. No wonder he is successful. He always looks ahead. He never crosses a T until he comes to it. Clear visioned he is. His eyes have their specks on straight. Such a man will go far without being missed. The next specimen is a letter written by the dashing young hero, to the heroine. It reads, Dear Basnia, I love you madly. Your father despises me, because I am poor, but honest. Elope with me at midnight, in my racing machine. Beverly. 
stanch and dependable. His passion is intense. Yet he is too loyal to betray it. Note the uncompromising uprightness of his elves. You just can't help trusting him, because, as he says, he hasn't any money. Here is a letter penned by a wayward wife. Fraught with tense emotion, it is indeed a moving human document. She writes, Dear Bertram, I am leaving you tonight forever. Try to understand and forgive me. My hand trembles so that I am scarcely right. I hope you will be happy. Goodbye, Anger. What a wealth of sorrow this handwriting displays. Poor unfortunate woman, tearful and yet volatile. Her M's are bowed with grief, and yet they have an arch look. Out of touching deference to her first love, she makes a desperate effort to be neat. She is not willing that her husband's last mentor of her should be a sloppy one. Even when about to commit a sin, she still retains that refinement of nature which he has always reverenced, that indescribable feminine delicacy which was wont to reveal itself in such little acts as shrinking visibly the touch of unclean overshoes. There are innumerable other examples which might be cited, handwritings of every conceivable kind, but the endless variety of them would merely tend to bewilder. Therefore, I shall give only two more, and without extended comment, for indeed their characteristics jut out quite protuberantly. A little six-year-old child raises her face wistfully from her page of angel food and scrawls. Dear Daddy, Mum and me wish you would come home, Melper. Truly a revelation of the artistic nature. In contrast to this, let us examine what Jimmy the Dope, escaped convict, scribbles to his confederate. Steve, be there with your toes at one o'clock tonight. Ready to do the job. But look out for that Italian named Isaac McJavish. He's a stool pigeon. Jimmy. This particular specimen has a tragic interest for us. It demonstrates the failure of our modern institutions. Here is a man forced by society into a felon's trade, who is capable of earning an honest living as an instructor in penmanship. Musique classe. All strivers after the ideals. None have so kindly a method as the architects responsible for those pleasing structures turned French pastry. Whatever they create is delicate, delectable, imbued with sweetness. Putting aside the thought of future fame, these gentle artifices devote their labor to works as perishable as they are exquisite. Meringues sculptured in ambrosial stucco that melt to nothing. Roseate cakelets of which the crimson splendor endures no longer than a sunset. Kisses that are all too brief. Tarts, which frail as flowers, succumb quickly to hunger in the dessert. These crust craftsmen pour forth richness as songbirds do, creating rapture for but a precious moment. If ordinary architecture is frozen music, 
and surely this gallic refinement of it is musique glacée there are many styles ranging from perpendicular gothic to powdered rococo so many in fact that one could scarcely hope to masticate them all at a single sitting two or three is the most i have ever been able to account for yet each style if found in its purity merits attention as an embodiment of good taste for even the humblest cream puff despite the looseness of its design and the unpretentiousness of its exterior has an interior well worth investigating perhaps the most important landmark in all the realm of pastry is the tradition hallowed and chocolate-roofed eclair whose long nave affords sanctuary for whipped cream or custard not necessarily chocolate-roofed however the ease may be tinged instead with a soft patina of cafe au lait this mellow hue pile eminently edible is cherished by multitudes of devotees another structure beautiful in ruin is the massive paddy that serves as donjon keep for oysters upon its crumbling ramparts parsley has found root and encircling its fissured base is a broad moat of gravy gaunt sugarless no oyster can hope to escape an equally notable tower is the stately white charlotte russe its impenetrable wall of cardboard reinforced inside with a doughty thickness of cake rises sheer from the glasses of the plate and terminates in crenellated battlements over the edge of which hang masses of cream ready for the invader upon the topmost pinnacle is posted a sentinel cherry of contrastingly mild aspect are the various crisp terraces those luxuriant hanging gardens where fruits of every sort are spread out in gorgeous profusion rows of gold gleaming apricots neat hedges of orange plugs happy pears and oddly better halves of peaches a bed of sugar-fed strawberries each tucked in snugly grapes chaliced in fluted pie-crust jocund apple chips and banana checkers cuddled cosily slice against slice truly a paradise in pastry and there are a host of other fair shapes the panting like custard cake beneath the low dome of which is a votive offering of cream the amazing custard skyscraper with its innumerable furores the walls and gaily iced roof the byzantine baba arum inlaid with tutti frutti mosaics and steeped in subtle enchantment and countless others fanes kiosks minarets pavilions reliquies of jam beckoning to splish or digestion frail ephemeral created with no thought of permanence and yet we should hardly enjoy them more if they were built of everlasting marble the craftsmen who design them scorning personal glory do not sign their works for theirs is the true aesthetic spirit so rare in this commercial age the handiwork faithfully bears out the precept tart for tart's sake the care of the husband the average young wife is regrettably inexperienced in the matter of husbands unless it has been her fortune to have a wise mother or a divorce she is likely to be quite ignorant how to care for and train the big stranger who comes into her life therefore 
these precepts of friendly counsel may not seem to the matrimonial novice altogether amiss the advice i would give is simple in the fullest sense of the word so that after the young wife has had a few husbands she can dispense with it if not sooner feeding this is the most important problem a wife has to face the husband must be made to feel that he is well fed otherwise he will not be contented and docile during the first week after marriage when he is still quite infantile and tender to the point of mushiness he may be fed from the hand or spoon this method will be found especially satisfactory in cases where the husband shows symptoms of sickly sentimentality throughout the entire first month he will be so demanding of care so bewildered by the strange new world in which he finds himself as to be barely able to maintain sanity in short he will be so 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 that she will have to prepare all the food herself or at least make him think she does but later a change of diet will be found necessary he will demand scientifically prepared foods if the change is managed in the right way can be accomplished with only slight upset to his disposition simply alter the feeding formula so that the total quantity is lessened and the proportion of sugar and burnt materials is increased it will soon take effect in a day or two he will say with a worried look darling i'm afraid the cooking is too much for you and you know what he really means after that the transition to avowedly professional cooking will be quite painless outings and play during the first few months the husband will not need many outings he will be happy and contented if allowed to romp about the house such toys as hammers picture wire curtain rods etc will keep him occupied later however there will come a period of restlessness then you must take him out more and more and let him run and play with other husbands after you have made sure of course that they are good well-behaved husbands the companionship of these innocent sports will tend to make him one himself when as time goes by he reaches the stage where he begins to take notice the wife must be very careful for he is highly impressionable at this time a wife will do well to look out for her husband herself instead of entrusting him to some empty-headed girl whom she may not really know at all if he needs amusement let her divert him with brightly coloured silks and baubles which she wears and he pays for let her take him to see the pretty theatre and show him the beautiful mountains and the big blue ocean and tell him fairy stories about economy and teach him to draw nice big checks in his little checkbook discipline cannot begin too early the husband must be taught that he can only have the things that his wife decides are best for him and that no protesting on his part will do any good if he proves fretful chide him by threatening to go live with your mother if after that he is still unruly threaten to have your mother come live with you in this way he will soon learn to mind indeed before long you will be able to show him off before company with the assurance that he will behave just as you have trained him to and you will have the satisfaction of hearing your friends declare he does you credit awakening his mind this is one of the chief duties and responsibilities of wifehood it cannot be shirked 
for while no husband is expected to know anything of marriage the fact that he got married attests that he is expected a year or so later to look intelligent when the lady next to him at dinner discusses kui and scriabin and to know the gorga is not something to be got from a bootlegger for him not to know these things would be a reflection on his home training or in other words his wife she will be considered negligent unless she has instilled into his rudimentary mind a smattering of whatever is accounted smart for every wife is judged by the way she brings up her husband Note. if in the above treatise i have borrowed from the learned doctors who have written concerning the care of the baby i am sorry for i see no prospect of ever being able to pay them back even this small note of mine will be discounted terminology of tardiness our late demented newspapers are in a plight they are no longer afflicted with a shortage of paper they are still cramped by a dearth of names for their afternoon editions all the standby titles have been exhausted by midday the home edition night edition and special extra have come and gone and there is still the whole afternoon with nothing left to tempt the tired business man with various grades of finals new nomenclature is needed names that will stir the imagination and summon the sense desirous of doing what i can toward alleviating this distressing situation i venture to suggest the following schedule eight a m late edition one star nine a m extremely late edition two stars ten a m inexcusably late edition three stars eleven a m hopelessly late edition one constellation twelve midnight edition two constellations one p m tomorrow morning edition group of planets two p m tomorrow afternoon edition complete solar system three p m day after tomorrow edition comet four p m next week edition large comet five p m Next month edition, unusually large comet. 6 p.m. Next year edition, complete zodiac. 7 p.m. Special Doomsday Extra, Milky Way and Nebulae. Oppressors of the Meek I am not afraid of bloated bondholders. I suspect that they are just humans like myself, only that they have money. But I am afraid of their servants. They are not human. No one ever saw them eat, or sleep, or smile. My millionaire host may overlook the fact that I am using the salad fork for the fish. Not so his English butler. This austere personage takes notes of my error in silence, and when the salad course arrives, stills up behind me like Nemesis, and lays by my plate the fork that correct form demands. I feel chastened. His eye is always upon me. I can't even take a sip of water without his calling attention to it by stealthily refilling my glass. If he didn't watch me so closely when I am helping myself, I wouldn't be so nervous. As it is, my hand trembled under his grueling stare. 
just at the critical moment when my tongueful asparagus conveyed like a hot coal is poised in mid-air between the serving-dish and my plate i flinch and there is a green and white avalanche i make a frantic slap at it as it falls and by good luck it lands on the plate to be sure some of the stalks are craning their necks perilously over the edge but that is a small matter compared with what might have happened rake them into the middle of the plate, still gasping at the thought of my narrow escape. My host may overlook the fact that I am using the salad fork with fish. Not so his English butter. There is an awkward pause. The bon mot I was about to utter apropos of an opera I had never heard has left my mind entirely. I can't think of anything to say. Finally, in desperation, I remark idiotically to the dowager at my left, I love asparagus, don't you? The next time he passes a dish, I lose my nerve. I lift my hand to help myself, and then, as I catch his eye, draw back, shaking my head. No, I won't take any chances. After that, I keep to a strict diet, eating only the things that appear on my plate when it is put down in front of me. If the plate arrives naked and empty, naked and empty it remains, even though the cost consists of my favorite delicacy. I suffer the pangs of tentacles. Alligator pear salad, more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, is offered to me. I covet it. Everything gastronomic in my nature craves it cowardly fear restrains me it looks slippery and i refuse it i could almost weep as the dinner proceeds and my modified hunger strike continues i begin to regain confidence i feel that my abstemiousness implying as it does a jaded palate and aristocratic indigestion is highly fashionable i fancy that in refusing ambrosia I am showing a godlike superiority. I expand with self-assurance. Just watch me startle these plutocrats with my scorn of their costly food. I'll make myself the lion of them. May I help you to a shortcake, sir? Asks a low, ironically respectful voice. My pride collapses. The butter is seen through me to the cowardice of my heart. On his lofty pinnacle he stoops to succour me, but I rebel. I'll help myself, thank you, I retort, for I am on my mettle now, and boldly prize off the towering segment of the dessert. Would I let a menial reveal to the whole table that I was afraid to help myself? Never. Why, I'd sooner. Dizzily, the creamy thing tutters keels over and falls with a sickening flop, a mushy sound, as of the impact of a wet sponge. Juicy red berries gamble hither and thither. For a moment the shotcake lies helplessly on its side like a jellyfish that the tide has left. But only for a moment, for a wrecking crew made up of the butler and his assistant comes hurrying on the scene. With emergency plate and scraper they remove the debris, 
while I can turn purple and clutch at my collar for air. Then, after a modifying amount of crumb gleaning and cream mopping, they spread a napkin before me in the presence of my swell friends, as if to shield the cloth from further depredations. I draw back to allow them to put it there, and so doing, squash a hidden strawberry against my waistcoat. As a final humiliation, a fresh piece of shortcake is brought to me, already on a plate. If there is anything more formidable than an English butler, it is an English valet. Somebody else's valet, I mean. For I suppose that if a person had one long enough, he could get so that he wouldn't be afraid of him. But as for the perfectly strange English valet, your key, please, sir, demands Hawkins upon my arrival at my friend's summer palace. He bows slightly. What key? I ask uneasily. The key to your travelling bag, sir. I am just stopping overnight on my way home from a house party in the woods, and all my spare raiment is soiled and bedraggled. So I can unpack your things, sir, threatens the great mogul. Uh, never mind, thank you, I stammer. I've lost the key. Very good, sir, he replies and goes. But not permanently. When I return to my room at midnight, elated over having tranced my host in countless games of billiards, I am met at the door by my oppressor. In his hand is a small object. Well, Fester locksmith out from the city, sir, and I didn't make this for you, sir, if it's quite correctly, sir. One glance about the room, from the snaggletooth comb on the dresser to the frayed pyjamas, the mussiness of which no festive laying out can hide, makes me aware of my utter ignominy, since when I have confined my weekend visiting exclusively to lumber camps. End of part three.